0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to the book of Philippians. We are in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. So I want to start by asking you a question to consider. uh, and, And the question is how do you learn? What is the way that you learn the best? I know for some people, you can be told about something, and just by hearing about it, you're able to do it. Somebody gives you the instructions on, on maybe you're they, they give you a new, um, they give you a phone, and they say, hey, if you go to this place, and you do this, this, and this, you're able to do it, right? Some people, they need to be shown exactly what to do, how to walk through it. Some people want to see other people do it. Some people want to see themselves do it and then be critiqued and be able to critique their own mistakes. I know a lot of times in sports they'll record a person maybe taking a swing in baseball so they can break down all the things they need to correct. But there's various ways that we learn, but all people at some point do well or can learn by watching others. And today's sermon is titled Watch and Learn, and and how we work together as the family of God. In this scripture today we're going to be looking at two men, that Paul is sending to the Philippians, and we can look at their example and see what it means, what it looks like to be a part of the family of God and how we can serve him faithfully. So now, if you look in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send You, Epaphroditus, my brother, co worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because he heard that you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, not only him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for everything that your word contains. That when we look and we see and we see what's happening in these passages, Lord, I pray that you'll help reveal to us the truth that it contains. And God, I pray that as we gather this morning, as we come together to to look at your word, that you would just remove any distraction or any preconceived notion or anything that we may hold that would get in the way of what you would do in our hearts this morning. Father, we praise you and we thank you for all that you do. We pray that you'd be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you look at a passage like this and you see talk about Timothy and, a, and Epaphroditus and these people, and he's going to send them to the Philippians, he's gonna, uh, he hopes to come to the Philippians, it seems like a passage that could be sort of difficult to sort through. What is this passage talking about a specific event? Two men that no longer live. What what does this have to do with us today? As I mentioned when we started this series, working through Philippians, we were going to cover every verse in this book. And if you look at 19 through 30, this would seem to be something that contextually has a lot more to do with the Philippians then and a lot less to do with us now, at least at face value. Right? We don't have Timothy or Epaphroditus coming to us. We don't have any of these things happening in our life today. So what can we learn from this passage? I think one of the first things we can learn from this passage is that the body of Christ is a family. The body of Christ is a family. and I don't know about you or what you think of when you think of family, uh, but, but many people think very different things when they think of family. Some of you may have almost exclusively positive feelings, having a good family life and and you think of your family with great affection and you love to be around them. And some people have less positive feelings when they think about family. They don't have very good relationships with their family and, and, and their family has maybe been a source of hurt in their life. And some, maybe many people have a mixture of both. There is great memories with family, but there's also been hurt and hardship with family as well. What's almost, what we see most commonly is that families, within families you will find strong bonds that last a lifetime, and you will also find hurt and issues. And in today's passage we are primarily focusing on the positive aspect of what family should be, though in the family of Christ we do see some of the same negative elements that, and tension that can bubble up. But as we look at this passage, we see two men mentioned, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And you may have heard of one more than the other. Timothy is someone that we see referenced constantly through Paul's letters. And in fact, two of the letters that we have are addressed specifically to him and for his instruction. But there's something clear about the way Paul views his relationship with them. He speaks of them with family terms. Timothy has served with Paul like a son with a father. And Epaphroditus he calls his brother. There are so many places in Scripture where we see the body of Christ referred to as a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And we think about that today, how when we talk about one another, we, we speak about one another, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Oftentimes, a, a common term that people will use when they speak about a pastor or a person that's in the church, they, they talk about brother so-and-so, right? Where does that come from? The family relationship of the body of Christ. It's not just a term, it's not just a, a phrase that we use, but it is a recognition that we are family in Christ. So how did we become family? Why do we look at each other as family? If we look at Galatians 4, 4-7, through 7, we see this, when, when the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir." So the salvation found in Christ, we know this, right? This is the gospel that Jesus, God sent his only son Jesus so that he could live the life we could not to, to fulfill the law and pay the price for our sins so that we might be saved. So the salvation that is found in Christ is not simply the forgiveness of our sins, but a status change. It is not simply that we are forgiven from our sin, But we are our status before God changes. We go from a slave to sin, an enemy of God, to an adopted child of God. From a slave to sin and an enemy of God to an adopted child of God. And how are we adopted? We are adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And in this adoption, it says that we are given the Spirit of His Son, and we cry out to God, our Father, crying out, Abba, Father. This is a familiar term, right? When, when, I, when you go to be with your parents and you have this relationship with them, you, you call them Dad, or you call them Mom, or sometimes Daddy or Mommy. That's what when Eliza or Barrett, they, call, they say, Daddy, Mommy, it's an affectionate term. This Abba, Father, that we cry, it's affectionate. It's not... It's not far away, it's not something that is strange, but it's familiar, and there's love in there. So we cry out, Abba, Father. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can approach the Father as His child. And this is one of the most beautiful things we see about what Jesus has done. Before, when the people of Israel wanted to come before God to have their sins forgiven, what did they do? They brought a sacrifice, and what did they rely on? a priest, to mediate this forgiveness of sins. There was a separation between God and His people with the intermediary between. But what happened when Jesus died for us? The the veil was torn. This veil that separated the Holy of Holies that, that was where God's presence dwelled was torn in two. And God's presence was with men, and we could approach Him directly. And that's what we see. We no longer have to have intermediaries. When you want to pray, when you want to seek God, when you want to seek forgiveness for something you've done, when you want to seek comfort, what do you do? You go directly to the Father. Why? Because we have an intermediary in Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus, we go directly to our Father. How, do we, or how are we able to do this? because we are adopted sons and daughters. Okay, so we are adopted sons and daughters because of what Jesus has done. And it's so amazing that because of what Jesus has done, we've gone from an enemy to a child, from far off to in the family of God. This is the miracle of what Christ has done. And this is why we refer to each other as brothers and sisters, because we In Christ, our brothers and sisters, adopted children of God. Not that we are second class, but adopted by the blood of Jesus. And so from our scripture today, we see that this should go farther than just language. This is more than just an an, an analogy that we accept or, or words that we use to describe something. We very really should be and act as a family And so as we explore what it means to be a family, we must acknowledge that a family loves one another. And while it is not always, a, a family should be a place of love and respect where each member is given what they need to be the best person they can be. And here there are many of you who have had and raised children, and I guarantee as a parent, your goal was to raise your children to have every opportunity to succeed and be the best person they could be. You didn't want them to fail. You didn't want them to have uh, deficiencies. You wanted to help them in every way possible. And that is what we do as a family. In, in this passage, we see the general love and respect that Paul has for, this, for these men and the respect and love that they have for him. This is most clear in Paul's concern that he expresses for Epaphroditus being sick to the point of death. He said that God granted him mercy not only for his sake, but he also granted Paul mercy so that he would not have sorrow because of Epaphroditus' passing. He also expresses the Philippians' concern for Epaphroditus. So what do we see here? In this family, because of their bond of Christ, they love one another they want good things for one another. They want each other to be healthy, to be well, to be able to serve God together. It is right that we love and care for one another in this life. And, and in fact, our love for one another, for our Christian brothers and sisters, is a litmus test for our love of, for God. 1 John 4, 20-21 says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. This is a difficult but obvious statement. If we claim to love God, we should love one another we follow the example of christ we love as we have been loved god is love and he has loved us freely and the evidence that this love resides in our hearts is that we will it will be expressed to our brothers and sisters in the faith if we were to say as he says in this passage that i love god but everything that we do and every interaction we have with one another is unloving, where's the evidence of God's love within us? If we say we love our family members and our, our, our earthly families, if we say we love them, but everything we do is unloving, will they believe that we love them? Will they believe that there's care for them? In the same way, if we say we love God, but don't have any care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, Do we know the love of the Father? So we should love one another. We should be concerned for our brothers and sisters. We should be concerned for their physical health. We see this here in this passage. They are concerned with Epaphroditus, and they are glad that he has gotten better. We should be concerned with one another's physical health, seeking each other's good. We should be concerned with one another's relationship with God helping promote spiritual growth. We should be concerned with one another's relationship with others. When there's tension or disunity with, within the family, we should be concerned with that and seeking to promote unity. As mentioned before, just like traditional families have issues from time to time, the family of God can also have issues. There is one thing we clearly see in Scripture, that every relationship relationship, Within the family of God that has issues, there is one goal that we should have reconciliation. Anytime that we have issues with one another in the church, anytime the family of God has a a family dispute, we should do what? Always seek to reconcile. And one of the issues that can happen is that there are times where even though we are brothers and sisters, in Christ, and even though we are the family of God, we let our, our, our godly family look more like how sometimes earthly families look. How many families or people do you know where there's an estrangement and there's no reconciliation that takes place? It's difficult and it's hard. In the family of God, we should seek to reconcile. Seek to come back. And and if you've been wronged, the Bible makes it clear that if you've been wronged, you go to the person that wronged you and explain how you've been hurt. To forgive one another as we've been forgiven. These are hard things, but this is what the family of God should do. To exist and to, to show the love of God through the way we interact with one another. And not only do we come together in such a way that we love each other, but we should also strive to come together toward a common goal. And that is because a family works together. A family works together. If you've ever been part of a team or a group project or or anything where you relied upon other people, you know how important it is to have good people working alongside you. If you're seeking to to do something and, and you have to trust the people with you, There's teamwork involved. And in your own earthly family, you can see where there are times where people must fulfill their individual responsibilities for the good of the family. And in our godly family, in in the family of Christ, these things exist as well. We see from this passage that Paul admonishes Timothy and Epaphroditus as faithful men who are his co-workers in the gospel. As the body of Christ, we must be ready to fulfill what God has called us to do. To work with one another to fulfill what God has called us to do. Each person playing their part. Each person fulfilling what they have been called to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see this passage where he talks about the body of Christ. And every person being a member of the body of Christ all built together, being the body. And this is what it says at the end of that passage in, in chapter 12, verse 24 through 26. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is at the end of that passage talking about the body of Christ and one body and many parts and how each part is necessary. The, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The ear can't say to the, the mouth, I don't need you. All the parts of the body are necessary. We all have a role in the body. And verse 26 in particular sticks out. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In the family of God, if the body suffers, if we don't work well together, the family will suffer. You know, in, in our bodies, if one part of our body is not functioning well, there will likely be repercussions in other parts of the body. A disease that starts in one location can spread. An injury that affects one body part can lead to other injuries as you seek to compensate for that injury. And I remember even hearing of someone that went to the dentist and through their dental health they were able to say, you've got something, some issues going on in your body and was able to uncover a heart issue because of that. When your body suffers, the rest of your body will suffer. In the same way, when the body of Christ has suffering, the rest of the body will suffer along with it. This is the reality of what we see in this passage. And Paul has this issue in, in the very early church where people in the body are not playing the role that they're fulfilled to. He says of Timothy in Philippians two twenty 20-21 that we read, For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And this is the issue that Paul is facing, that those who are working for the gospel are not focused on the body of Christ, not focused on the work of fulfilling what Jesus Christ has called them to do, but they're focused on what? Their own interests. The same problem that Paul is dealing with then is the same problem that so often comes clear in churches today. When people are focused on their own interests rather than the body of Christ, the church will suffer. If we are one body and we are called to work together, what happens when we have this attitude? I remember seeing a scene in a movie where there's people that have to work together. As they have a, a, a parachute, and they realize one of them doesn't have a parachute. And, to, and to, to safely land on the ground, they have to all break off in pairs and to, to pull their parachutes one at a time to see who has it and who doesn't. And what happens in that scene is there's somebody who's selfish. They pull theirs too early. And they're safe, but what do they disregard? The safety of the one that didn't have a parachute. When we are concerned with our own interests and not the interest of others, not the body of Christ, what happens? Maybe we'll be okay, but who suffers? The body, because we weren't working toward a common goal And just like health issues, this does not always manifest itself right away. You can live a very long time with some neglected health issues where there's things going wrong, but you ignore them. You can live a while, but eventually it will come through. There can be apparently healthy churches where there are many who are not working toward the good of the body. Have you ever seen that before, where you've seen a church that seemed to be thriving, and and then over the years the church... All of, out of nowhere, seems to struggle. What happened there? What happened in these instances? How does the church function if there are people not working to the good of the body? And that's really what is happening. When a healthy church begins to struggle, it's because there were people not working for the body. There were people that were not doing their part. And when that happens, how does the church function? How does it appear to be healthy? The overextension of those who in the body who are working. You've probably heard the adage before that there are 20% of people who do 80% of the work. That's not very healthy, is it? For 80% of the work to be done by 20% of the people? But that can be the reality in many churches. And what happens to the 20%? That overextension causes them to suffer, to struggle, to get burnt out. And when the church hits a point where those who've been doing all this work and putting in all of this effort aren't able to do it any longer, all of the underlying issues become apparent. All of the, the people that weren't working for the body, it is clear that they weren't, and the church will suffer. Paul expresses this at times, when he spoke of people who deserted him in ministry, in Second Timothy, verses, or chapter four, verses nine through 10, he says this: "Make every effort to come to me soon, talking to Timothy, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Christens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So he made it clear that Timothy needs to come to him. Because Demas has deserted him. So, Timothy, because he's a faithful worker, because he's serving God, has to make up where others have not fulfilled their duty. Because of what? Because of what? Because of his, of Demas's love for the present world, where he was concerned with his own interests, what he wanted. He left Paul in a bad spot. And how is this going to be rectified? By someone who does work, leaving something else they were doing and coming. In filling in this gap. So, Timothy comes and maybe can minister to Paul and help him in this way, but what does that also leave? Whatever Timothy was doing is being left undone. When people in the body of Christ don't fulfill their role, there will be a lack of production. There will be a lack of a healthiness of the body because those who are working have to fill in the gaps. A family works together. And in this passage we see as well that Epaphroditus made up for what the Philippians were unable to do in their ministry to Paul and that it almost cost him his life. There are those who will give of themselves so that they have nothing left to give. And eventually when they have nothing left to give, they won't be able to give any longer. The way that we Avoid this, the way that we promote healthy church function is that every member in the body, every part of the the body does its part. Whatever it may be, it's going to be different. Not every person is going to do the same thing, but every person has a role, and we must work together to accomplish the mission that God has given us. We must take the example of these two faithful men and all play the role that we have That we have in the family of God. And if we want to see this continue, we want to see healthy growth, we want to see healthy building of disciples, we must prepare others for what they must do because a family equips for the future. A family equips for the future. I think when you had children or when you're raising your children, I know with our two children, as we look at them, we want to give them things to help them succeed. We want to put them in places to help them succeed. Anytime you, you go to a new place, they always ask you, well, how are the schools there? Why do they ask that? Because you want your children to be in a place where they're being equipped to succeed. You help them avoid hardship. You, you try to steer them in the right direction. You want to equip them for the future. And this is directly seen in the way that Paul invests in everyone in this passage. In the Philippians, as he is continuing to minister there, to them, To Epaphroditus as they have worked together and to Timothy that he looks to as a son. He is constantly seeking to invest in them for the future. I think Timothy is one of the most clear examples of this, of, of equipping someone to do something in the future. You know, he is the one that Paul looked to as a son in the faith. He works with Paul as a son with a father. And Paul wrote two letters specifically that we have in Scripture addressing church matters and how he himself should minister. It was an encouragement to him on the the task he was equipped with, specifically in 1 Timothy. Hey, if you're going to go and install overseers and deacons, this is what you need to look for. Here's the qualifications. But then also we see personal, uh, personal advice, personal advice on how to follow God faithfully. And Paul knew that his time was near, and he wanted to see that Timothy was properly equipped for ministry. Not only that, we see that he called them to do the very thing that he did. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in this passage, leave that up there for a moment, in this passage we see Four generations of believers engage in this process. Which you have heard from me, Paul. So what Paul has taught to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. So Paul has taught Timothy, who he is telling to teach faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Four generations of believers. That are, are, are taught through what Timothy is being taught by Paul. You've heard from me, teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. Four generations. We must take this approach. So what we've heard, you can think through your life. Who was your Paul in your life? the person that invested the most most in you. Maybe it was your your earthly father or mother. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a youth pastor or a pastor that helped grow you and show you what it meant to follow God. Who, Who can you look to in your life as a Paul as an example of what it means to follow Christ? So what that person has taught you and shown you, you should then take and teach to others. That doesn't mean you're going to be an upfront public speaker or a teacher in that manner, but that you find people you can invest in. If you've had children, hopefully you've taught them the good news of what Jesus has done for you. You've taught them what you believe. If you come to church, it's easy to build relationships. These, these Paul and Timothy-like relationships don't have to be extremely formal. They can be very informal. Someone that is in the church that you enjoy doing similar things, and as you go you share with them, you teach them about what you have been taught in your life. The beautiful thing about the family of God, just like every family, is we are all different, with different backgrounds, with different experiences, and each person with their unique background and experience is uniquely equipped to equip others to follow God. If someone walks into this church and has been struggling with issues you've, you've struggled with in your life, guess what you have the ability to do? To help them walk through and navigate that. There are so many things that, that you can probably think of in your life, that the, some of the hardest things you've been through, that when you came to that moment, you thought there was nothing you could do to get through it. But you did. But you did. And now, because you have that perspective, you can meet right there with the person that's walking through the same thing. Before we had Eliza, we had a a miscarriage, and it was very difficult. But do you know what I didn't realize? How many people had been through the same thing? You know how many people came to us and said, hey, we've been there. We're praying for you. We love you. It meant a lot, because there were people who cared about us, who had been there, who ministered to us based off their experiences. What experiences do you have that can allow you to minister to others? And the reality of all of this is that it echoes the great commission that we see in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age." So Jesus says what? Go make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? After they've converted and they've been baptized, you teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. So again, we see this generational Christianity here. They have heard from Jesus. So Jesus taught disciples who are going to make disciples disciples teaching them everything He's commanded to them. What was the last thing He commanded them? Go and make disciples, teaching them to, command, to to obey everything I've commanded you. And so if they are teaching these new disciples to follow Jesus, to obey everything He's commanded, they also have to teach them the last commandment, go and make disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded us. There is a cyclical process of making disciples. And in it seems like it, there could be, hey, maybe there's easier ways, maybe there's better ways. This process, this commandment is the reason we are sitting here today. The disciples believed Jesus, and they went and made disciples. And they trained disciples to obey Him who went and made disciples. So that 2,000 years later, we sit here in Evansville, Indiana, and we are proclaiming Christ Christ. And we are proclaiming the words that He taught. We are looking at, at, at what it means to follow Him, seeking to also go and make disciples. This is why we're here. Because someone was faithful. You know, we have family trees, right? There's all these different ways you can track your, your ancestry and your family trees and to look back and see where you come from. I would love to see some spiritual family trees. Who were the faithful men and women that brought you here to this moment? Who brought you to faith in Christ? Which disciple do do you relate back to? Which faithful men? Were they martyred? How many were martyred? How many gave their life for the gospel? Because of faithful people, because they were equipped for the future, we sit here today. And what we must do is be faithful in doing the work, loving each other as a family, and equipping disciples for the future. If we, if we miss this part, if we, if we miss the equipping for the future, there can become breaks in what we see for the future. If we, if, we see, if we take the model of the Old Testament, we see what Israel did, and there's a generation that arose that didn't know the Lord. We see struggle and difficulty as they turn away from God if we equip and we train for the future, we will see people come to faith in Christ because God will be faithful. So there's some questions that you need to ask yourself this morning. First and foremost, are you in the family of God? At the beginning of this sermon, we looked at how we are a family and we are a family because of what Jesus has done. Because of the blood of Christ, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. And that through faith in Christ, believing in Him, repenting of our sins, trusting Him for our salvation, we can be called a child of God. Are you in that family this morning? Have you been bought by the blood of Jesus, adopted into the family of God? And if you are, are you following the example that faithful men and women have set before you? Are you following the example of people you've seen in your life, the example we see in Scripture? Are you playing the role God has called you to? Not just do you attend church, not just are you, are you doing things, but are you actively living out your faith in your life? Are you actively contributing to the mission that God has called us to, to make disciples of all nations, to invest in others? And that's the next question. Are you investing yourself in? and others teaching them what you have learned the most successful the most beautiful funeral any person can have is where there are countless people that can come and speak about what that person meant to them and how they taught them to love jesus how they taught them and where they were an example of what it meant to follow christ are you living a life that leads to that are you living a life that leads to people knowing about Jesus because of what you are doing. So as we close today, as Becky comes, and we're going to sing our song of invitation in a moment, I want to challenge you to think through these questions in your life. Are you a part of the family of God? Because if you are not, today is the day to be adopted in, but to believe in what Jesus has done for you so that you might be saved. And then also to consider... Are you playing your role in the family well? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day that you've given us, this time we can gather together and worship you and to to examine what it means to be a part of the family of God. And I pray that you would help us to be a functional family that, that works well, that loves one another, that works alongside one another and equips future generations to do the same thing. Father, I pray that if there are any who do not know you this morning, any that are not a part of this family, that, that have not believed in Jesus yet, that today would be the day that they lay aside any pride, any inhibition, anything that would hold them back and repent and believe in what you have done for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we Worship. And during this time, the the altar is open for prayer, and, and I will be here for prayer as well.